2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us today. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. And we're going to talk with Nancy Anderson. She is the author of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome. In fact, the title might sound familiar to you because this is the second edition. And in this new edition, it's updated and it includes a section on what to do if uh, an affair has already occurred in your marriage. Nancy Anderson will join us later in the five o'clock hour. The subtitle of her her book, How to Grow Affair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. Before we get started, I just have to say what a delight It was to spend Saturday evening with so many of our listening sisters here from KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish. It was a wonderful evening that we shared together. I'm referring, of course, to Thrive, the first women's event of its kind that we uh, together have sponsored, KPDQ and The Fish. And I hope that you enjoyed yourself, that you were challenged and encouraged and inspired, and that you'll join us next time around. And for those of you who weren't able to join us because the venue had uh, a limit on the number of people that could participate we are uh, hoping to produce a similar event next year and we'll make sure that there's room for you next time around as well but again just a real blessing to me personally and i know for the team uh, that you spent the evening with us and we hope it was uh, everything that you had uh, anticipated and um, hoped it would be all right taking a look at the news uh, top fbi official andrew mccabe is headline news today he's been removed that's the word that's being applied in quotes From his post as deputy director of the FBI, leaving the bureau after months of conflict of interest complaints from Republicans, including the president. A source confirmed that McCabe is taking terminal leave, which sounds ominous. Anyway, he's effectively taking vacation until he reaches his planned retirement in a matter of weeks. As such, he will not be reporting for work at the FBI anymore. I'm wondering if I can do that, take terminal leave where I just, you know, for weeks, months at a time, you just don't show up and then... Retirement comes. Anyway, Republicans have questioned McCabe's ties to the Democratic Party, considering his wife ran a Democratic, um, rather ran as a Democrat for Virginia Senate seat in 2015, got financial help from a group tied to the Clinton family. Uh, an ally, Terry McAuliffe. So that was a connection that they just could not overlook. Uh, Trump himself tweeted in December, and I'm quoting, how can FBI Director Andrew McCabe, the man in charge, along with Leakin James Comey of the phony Hillary investigation, including her 33,000 illegally deleted emails, be given $700,000 for wife's campaign by Clinton puppets during investigation? End quote. Well, on Monday, Democrats defended McCabe after news of his retirement broke. Now, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a surprise that he planned to retire in a manner of weeks, but this is earlier than anyone anticipated. But they in his defense said FBI Director Andrew McCabe is and has been a dedicated public servant who has served this country well. That was from a for, uh, rather former Attorney General Eric Holder tweeting. He worked in the Obama administration and has become a frequent Trump critic. Well, adding, um, uh, Holder went on to say bogus attacks on the FBI and DOJ to distract attention from a legitimate criminal inquiry does long, uh, long term unnecessary damage to these foundations of our government. Now, if the tables were turned, this is the nature of politics. The Democrats would have thrown their heads back and they would be howling. So uh, virtue seems to switch sides depending on which party is in power. But the controversy erupted when a PAC, a political action committee, tied to then-Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, an associate of the Clintons, donated money to McCabe's wife uh, in her state legislative campaign, even as McCabe investigated Clinton. Well, McCabe's uh, exit follows recent news of other changes in top FBI roles as the president has taken aim at other senior FBI officials who worked under the former director, James Comey. Well, FBI Director Christopher Rye or Ray, rather, said last week that his chief of staff, James uh, Rybicki, uh, was leaving the Bureau. Department of Justice officials also said that uh, Dana Bonte, uh, the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia, who is also the acting head of the Department of Justice National Security Division, has been selected to step in as the FBI's next general counsel. James Baker, who had served as general counsel, was reassigned late last year. Well, the Washington Post last week reported that the president, during an Oval Office meeting last spring, pressed McCabe, who was uh, then acting FBI director, about whom he voted for in the 2016 election. That's been disputed by other attendees of the meeting, but that seems to be a pattern. The president is accused of having said something, some uh, in the case of the unflattering words on uh, other countries. One uh, Democrat said he heard it. Others said they did not. You have to pick and choose who you believe because they're they're. It's difficult to find corroborating evidence, but nonetheless, in this case, he was alleged to have asked who he voted for. McCabe, according to the outlet, told the president he didn't vote. McCabe's name has been surfaced in connection with several other controversies. The Daily Beast reported that a GOP memo alleging government surveillance abuse named McCabe, uh, along with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and ex-FBI boss James Comey. Incidentally, the McCabe removal comes after uh, Ray viewed the memo Sunday on Capitol Hill, as reported uh, last week, several Republicans also want to, uh, to know what McCabe knew about the anti-Trump text messages between the two bureau officials, including one that seemed to reference an insurance policy against Trump winning in the 2016 election. I want to believe the path you threw out uh, for consideration in Andy's office, uh, that there's no way he gets elected. And you know the rest of the memo. We want an insurance policy. In any event, all of this uh, sort of linked together, and it's difficult to know who and what to believe, but he will be stepping away, and uh, my hope and prayer is that ultimately we'll get to the bottom of all of the swirling controversies, not just to benefit one party or another, but, I don't know, I'd like to see a healthy dose of truth. Let's find out what actually happened. Let's find out who did what, when, and whether or not crimes were committed for the sake of the republic rather than the political career of uh, any individual or group of individuals. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we just learned that um, let me find this because it just came up. The House Intelligence Committee today, or rather this evening voted to release the classified memo circulating in Congress that purportedly reveals government surveillance abuses, at least that 's the Republican version. The vote was announced to reporters by California Representative Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the committee who called it a very sad day, I think, in the history of this committee. The motion passed on a party line basis. He said, well, the president now has five days to decide whether he has any objections before the memo can be publicly released. Last week, a top Justice Department official urged House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunes not to release the memo, saying it would be extraordinarily reckless and could harm national security and ongoing investigations. Well, the four-page memo has, uh, uh, has been described by GOP lawmakers as shocking, troubling, and alarming, with one congressman likening the details to KGB activity in Russia. Those who have seen the document suggest it reveals what role the unverified anti-Trump dossier played in the application for a surveillance warrant on at least one Trump associate. Well, Representative Schiff said the uh, GOP majority, or rather, um, uh, Senator Schiff, said the GOP majority committee also voted against releasing a counter memo written by the Democrats. Today, this committee voted to put the president's personal interests, perhaps their own political interests, above the national interest, he went on to say. The vote came the same day that it was reported that FBI official Andrew McCabe would be leaving his post as deputy director. Well, the White House seems to favor the memo's release, but wouldn't explicitly say whether The president will back that effort. We want full transparency. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders Huckabee said on uh, well at the press conference earlier today. That's what we have uh, said all along. Sanders said they were uh, letting the process play out before officially weighing in. Well, the time has now come that the president must officially weigh in and we'll find out what uh, what will happen next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, I want to take a moment and give away a pair of tickets to see Johnny W. Comedy Night at East Hill Church. That's coming up on March the 10th, 7 o'clock p.m. Tickets are going to be emailed to you, so uh, you need to have an email address. But uh, if you're looking for a night to just laugh, be amused. Have a great time. Dinner and a comedy show. That's uh, that's the bill. Anyway, we're giving away a pair of tickets so you can come see Johnny W. Comedy. That's at East Hill Church again on the 10th of March. You can find out more at kpdq.com if you want to find out about uh, Johnny W. And you can always... Go to YouTube or somewhere and find little clips of uh, these comedian types. Uh, But we want to give away a pair of tickets to caller number three. And the number to call is uh, 503-786-9390. 503-786-9390. Caller number three, a night of comedy at East Hill Church on March the 10th, 7 o'clock p.m. We'll be giving away um, pairs of tickets throughout the week. So listen up for an opportunity to win your night of comedy. Well, the White House on Thursday released an immigration plan that would offer a path to citizenship for approximately one point eight million of the so-called dreamers, along with a twenty five billion dollar investment in border security, including for, uh, for President Trump's long promised wall. Now, the White House uh, was expected to provide more details of the president's proposal uh, early this week. But the proposal represents a reversal for Trump and could provoke resistance among his uh, conservative allies. Could did already has. Well, in September, the president ended the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program, which uh, currently covers roughly 690,000. How you get from 690,000 to 1.8 million, and some are suggesting it's closer to 3.6 million is another story. Anyway, roughly 690,000 immigrants who were brought to the United States as children illegally. Independent estimates say about twice that number qualify for the program, however. And the president, who once promised to eliminate DACA entirely, later reversed himself and urged lawmakers to extend the program while denying he would consider citizenship for those covered. Well, on Wednesday of last week, the president said he was open to a pathway to citizenship for younger immigrants brought illegally into the country as children. Now, younger, we're stretching that um, rather broadly. Um, A lot of these uh, younger immigrants are now in their mid to late 30s, but he went on to say we're going to morph into it, speaking to reporters, it's going to happen at some point in the future over a period of 10 to 12 years. Now, legal status for the recipients would be uh, revocable for criminal behavior and national security threats, the official said, and um, eventual citizenship would require still unspecified work and education requirements and a finding that the immigrants are of good moral character. Well, the president's plan would restrict new family-based immigration to spouses and minor children, doing away with provisions allowing parents, adult siblings and others to enter the country, that chain migration. The official said it would only end new applicants for visas, allowing those already in the pipeline to be processed. Well, he's willing to provide amnesty to 1.8 million 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 uh, young illegal immigrants in exchange for a stronger border wall. The White House said it would like to see $25 billion for beginning the construction on the border wall along the U.S. border that Congress uh, years ago already approved but never funded. More funding for border security personnel and an end to chain migration and an end to the diversity visa uh, lottery system. A White House official called this a dramatic concession. The White House official believes the compromise position could get 60 votes in the Senate and could then be sent over to the House for additional improvements and modifications. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. The group of 1.8 million uh, illegal immigrants exceeds the 800,000 immigrants brought to the country as minors who were shielded from deportation under President Obama's 2012 DACA. Uh, Program Those 1.8 million uh, would be on a path to citizenship that the White House estimates would take some time. It comes in many forms, speaking of amnesty, but it seems they all eventually grow in size and scope. Any proposal that expands the amnesty eligible uh, population risks opening Pandora's box. Uh, Mike Needham, CEO of Heritage Action for America, said in a statement and could lead to a gang of eight style negotiation that should be a non-starter. Well, the back and forth has begun. It will continue. Uh, there have been s- uh, few supporters, lots of dissenters to the president's plan, which was announced, as I mentioned, last week details of which are expected this week. Now, I did hear some speculation uh, driving in this morning uh, that the president uh, had suggested amnesty only as a means to expose the Democrats who don't really want to settle the issue until after the 2018 elections because it is a a useful tool for attempting to retake the House and the Senate. Um, But one can only hope that uh, that kind of cynicism is not accurate, even though it certainly seems merited. Well, a key House committee is, um, uh, was set to vote today on whether to make a public classified memo that top congressional Republicans say um, details government surveillance abuses. That vote was taken earlier today, and uh, they, the House committee decided they will allow that memo's release. It now requires the president to comment on it. But there was also another issue of great concern to many of us, although perhaps not as many As uh, are interested in this surveillance. The Senate rejected a bill earlier today to ban most abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, It was the uh, pain capable. Abortion Act that would have ended abortions after 20 weeks because science um, supporters argue tells us that the unborn can feel pain at that point. Senate, uh, The Senate voted today on Senate Bill 1922, known as the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. and makes it a crime or would have made it a crime for any person to perform or attempt to perform an abortion if the probable post-fertilized age of the unborn child is 20 weeks or older. There was a filibuster in the Senate. And the uh, Republicans were not able to override that filibuster, so the pain-capable unborn child protection act in the Senate has failed. It did pass uh, some time ago in the House, but once again, abortion unimpeded and without any regard to the, uh, uh, the unborn child in utero um, has uh, been disregarded once again in Congress. Meanwhile, Planned Parenthood's Cecile Richards confirmed in a video announcement that she's resigning as president of America's largest abortion chain this year. Uh, Today, I am announcing I will be stepping from my position as president of Planned Parenthood. She smiled in the video. She has given no indication what she intends to do, leaving her post as the head of America's largest abortion provider. No replacement has uh, even been hinted at. She said after 12 incredible years. Hmm. She said in an emailed statement that the time has come for me to move on to my next chapter and for new voices to take the lead at Planned Parenthood. She said working for Planned Parenthood has been the greatest honor of her life. Now, imagine that working at the the largest abortion provider in the country is the greatest honor of her life. Uh, She's overseen America's largest abortion vendor since 2006. Her salary continually increased, as did her tenure. She currently um, rakes in nearly a million dollars a year overseeing the organization that commits over 300,000 abortions annually. An estimated 3.5 million babies have been aborted under her watch. Planned Parenthood has helped tens of millions take control of their health and future by providing birth control, other exams, uh, she said in her video, she said America's currently low rate of unintended pregnancy was due to the life changing and life saving work of Planned Parenthood. Wow. President Trump's pro life mandate continues to threaten the very existence of the abortion giant, uh, thankfully. Um, says uh, David Daleiden of the Center for Medical Progress, uh, speaking to LifeSite News, as Planned Parenthood faces federal criminal investigation from the FBI and the Department of Justice for selling aborted baby body hearts, lungs, livers and brains. Richards' departure shows that the old strategy is no longer working. The secret is out that Planned Parenthood is a taxpayer-sponsored crime syndicate of industrial-scale child-killing, and even Cecile Richards can no longer put a friendly spin on it. She may be stepping down because Planned Parenthood is under investigation for illegally trafficking in aborted baby body parts. Um, and other crimes. Troy Newman, who's the president of Operation Rescue, told LifeSight News she may be trying to get out before indictments drop. She is also tainted with other scandals by her close affiliation with Hillary Clinton and Fusion GPS, which are also being investigated. Planned Parenthood may now view her as a liability. Well, it goes on from there. Nonetheless, Cecile Richards uh, will leave behind a brutal legacy if she departs from the position as the president or as she departs. She reportedly told the organization's board on Wednesday that she plans to step down, pioneered a company that uh, has aborted 7,131,130 babies since Margaret Sanger's founding of the abortion organization. Planned Parenthood doctors aborted more than 328,348 aborted or rather unborn babies in 2016. And over 6 million between 1978 and 2016, according to CNS News. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Nancy Anderson. She's the author of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. She speaks to the subject from both sides of the issue, having crossed that line looking for greener grass and having returned to find that what she was looking for was right where uh, she had vowed to stay. Nancy Anderson joining us later this afternoon in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Senate has confirmed Governor Samuel Dale Brownback of Kansas to be ambassador-at-large for international religious freedom at the Department of State. Every uh, Senate Democrat voted against him, so Vice President Mike Pence cast the tie-breaking vote in Brownback's favor. In the ambassadorship, Governor Brownback will lead the Office of International Religious Freedom, which is under the umbrella of the State Department, and charged with promoting religious freedom as a foreign policy objective. The Office rather, of International Religious freedom, monitors religious persecution and discrimination worldwide, recommends and implements policies in respective regions or countries, and develops programs to promote religious freedom. Well, Mr. Brownback has been governor of Kansas since 2011, served as a U.S. senator and a U.S. representative in the House of Representatives from Kansas. And while a member of the Senate, he worked actively on the issue of religious freedom in multiple countries. And he was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. Governor Brownback um, was nominated by the president and the Senate for confirming uh, rather he thanked Uh, The uh, president and the Senate for confirming uh, him as ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, said it's sad, however, that every Democrat put partisanship over religious freedom. Innocent people around the world are imprisoned, tortured, persecuted for their faith. Christians and religious minorities are suffering more persecution than at any time in history. Governor Brownback has proven that he will fight for religious freedom. He will do an excellent job defending this sacred freedom around the world. Again, Matt Staver from Liberty Council uh, commenting on the um, ambassadorship of Governor Samuel Brownback, who will be ambassador at large for international rights of uh, religious freedom through the State State Department. Well, former Secretary of State John Kerry reportedly tried to meddle in Middle Eastern uh, peace talks, allegedly telling a close associate of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas not to yield to President Trump's demands when he demands that they engage in peace talks. Israeli news outlet uh, Marav uh, reported on an apparent meeting between Kerry and uh, Hussein Aga in London, where the 2004 Democratic presidential nominee also reportedly floated a possible encore bid in 2020. But in the conversation, Kerry reportedly told Aga to share a message with Abbas, urging him to hold on and be strong during the talks with the president's uh, other. Trump administration and play for time and not yield to President Trump's demands. Well, Kerry, who served as former President Barack Obama's secretary of state during his second term, also reportedly told uh, Ga that uh, Trump would not be in office for long, suggesting he could be out in a year. Well, That's uh, a bit of prognosticating. According to the report, Kerry used uh, derogatory terms when referring to the president. That's not surprising. He offered to help the Palestinians create an alternative peace initiative. He reportedly asked Abbas not to attack the U.S. or the Trump administration, but rather focus attacks on the president himself. Thank you, former Secretary of State and uh, loyal American. One prominent Trump ally, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, voiced disbelief at the reported comments on Thursday. Uh, Kerry knows as a former Secretary of State, a former U.S. senator, that kind of advice would be stunningly unpatriotic. And I don't think John Kerry would do something like that, Gingrich said. I hope he wouldn't. I would uh, be very, very surprised if a former Secretary of State, a former U.S. senator, would have said anything that was uh, that overtly, overtly rather anti- American. The White House didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. The State Department says that they would uh, decline to comment as well. It's unclear whether Abbas plans to take Kerry's advice, if in fact that advice has been given, but the Palestinian leader already has drawn the scorn of the Trump administration. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley used the UN Security Council meeting on Thursday to slam Abbas over recent remarks he gave in which he allegedly rejected any U.S. role in peace talks. We will not chase after a Palestinian leader Leadership that lacks what's needed to achieve peace, she said. Well, Kerry's meeting with Palestinian Authority representatives comes just one month after the Trump administration decided, after years of U.S. promises, to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. By the way, those were promises made by Presidents Obama and Bush. Vice President Pence uh, this week said that peace between Israel and the Palestinians is more likely following the decision, and noted that the State Department would begin the process of moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem Pence said on Monday that the embassy would open next year ahead of schedule. Now, there was a lot of talk about the fact that it would take two to three years for this to to be possible. But apparently, uh, the Trump administration is expediting that move. This week, Pence also fired back against accusations that the controversial announcement made the peace process impossible and breached the trust with the Palestinian leadership. He said the truth is the Palestinians walked away from negotiations for peace with Israel in 2014 and have stayed away since. It's time for the Palestinians to come back to the table, Pence uh, said, speaking to Fox News this week. The reality is President Trump made a promise to the American people, and he kept that promise in recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Well the vice president added that we're uh, we've made no determination on the final status of boundaries of any peace agreement and if both sides come together and agree we'll accept a two state solution so it doesn't preclude that outcome. According to Israeli media, Arab leaders uh, at Davos have expressed hope they could resume peace talks despite the Jerusalem controversy. So one can only hope that the vice president is uh, correct. In his assessment, I mentioned that U.S. Ambassador um, Nikki Haley, the U.N. Um, Well, ambassador launched a, a broadside. This was on Thursday at the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, accusing him of indulging in outrageous conspiracy theories about Israel and lacking what is needed to secure peace in the region. She made the remarks at a meeting of the U.N. Security Council on the Middle East. She pointedly contrasted Abbas with leaders like the late Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, whom she cited as a leader willing to step forward, acknowledging hard truths and making compromise. Where is the Palestinian Anwar Sadat? She asked she cited a speech earlier this month in which Abbas tore into Israel and the United States rejecting any American role in the talks. We will not accept, we will not accept for the u s to be a mediator because after what they have done to us, a believer shall not be stung twice in the same place. Abbas said, according to the New York Times, responding to the threats to pull funding for the Palestinian Authority he said expletive your money. A speech that indulges in outrageous and discredited conspiracy theories is not a speech of a person with the courage and the will to seek peace, she said. He rejected any American role in the peace talks. He insulted the American president. He called for suspending recognition of Israel, Haley said. He invoked an ugly and uh, fictitional past reaching back to the 17th century to paint Israel as a colonialist project engineered by European powers. A speech that indulges in outrageous and discredited conspiracy theories is not a speech of a person with the courage and the will to seek real peace, she added. She said that while the U.S. was eager to pursue peace, we will not chase after a Palestinian leadership that lacks what's needed to achieve peace. At the session, Palestinian ambassador. Mansour, uh, attacked the decision by the U.S. to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and, capital, and move the embassy, uh, saying that it was null and void. We remain insistent on respect for the law and our rights, and we reject this unilateral provocation decision, which directly contravenes the charter and U.S. resolutions on the matter, he went on to say. Well, the U.N. session came after remarks by the president of the United States, who spoke alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Davos, Switzerland, he said there needs to be more from the Palestinians in term of peace process and threatened to remove funding otherwise, which he has moved toward doing when they disrespect us, disrespected us a week ago by not allowing our great vice president to see them. And we give them hundreds of millions of dollars in aid and support. Tremendous numbers, numbers that nobody understands. That money is on the table and that money's not going to them unless they sit down and negotiate peace. He went on to say, yet a boss in the Palestine. The Palestinian Authority got some American support this week from the Obama administration's Secretary of State, John Kerry. Kerry reportedly told a close associate, as I mentioned earlier, um, and urged him to hold on uh, strongly uh, against the, uh, the president, if not the United States. So we'll see whether or not that can be confirmed and what Abbas chooses to do moving forward. Is the vice president correct in his assessment that this uh, does, in fact, in some of the Palestinians who attended Davos, um, is their assessment correct, or is the former Secretary of State's uh, assessment that the Palestinians should simply hold off until or hold out until the next administration, which he predicts will be within a year? Um, again, we'll continue to follow that story. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Nancy Anderson. She has written many articles and a couple of books. Her latest is Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow a Fair Proof Hedge. Around or hedges around your marriage, and she goes into detail about her own struggle with the straying some thirty plus years ago, and what she and her husband have learned since as they reconciled and have a very strong marriage that encourages others as well. So Nancy Anderson will join us at about a quarter after the five o'clock hour. By the way, if you happen to miss any of our conversations, uh, interviews, you can always go to kpdq dot com. There is a podcast there. I think that that information is up. By the end of the evening, is that about right, Clark? The podcast? Yeah. Um, anyway, you can listen to that and other interviews that you may have been interested in. And if you uh, heard a conversation and you wonder, oh, what was the name of that book? Who was the author? What was that interview? You can also go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and I try to list every day. Occasionally, I will miss that. Just things get very busy. Um, but I try every day to put their, um, the names of the authors that I'm interviewing, their books, and so on. So you can check that out. If not, you can always call the front desk here, and we can do a little investigating for you if if, uh, if you need that as well. Well, last night, of course, was the Grammys. I stopped watching quite some time ago. They've gotten less and less uh, entertaining to me. Uh, I had some friends who uh, were up for Grammys. I don't even know if they won the Grammys. I'm thinking primarily of, um, of my piano-playing friend. Um, and uh, anyway, so I didn't watch the things, and apparently few people did as well. These uh, self-congratulatory Events have gotten more and more political and they're not as entertaining as people who just like the music and want to see what the industry is doing. They don't enjoy it as much. I mean, if you're interested in political things, there are places to do that. We can watch C-SPAN. But the Grammys, the um, Oscars, and so on, uh, they've, they've lost for many people their entertainment value. So while the stars in attendance seem to enjoy Sunday night's uh, highly politicized Grammy Awards, viewers were uh, were tuned off by the, the night's political antics. They included a cameo from the former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Viewership for the 60th annual Grammy Awards was down by more than 20% from last year's show, which was also down, according to The Hollywood Reporter, the early number ratings could indicate an all-time low for the Grammys. Now, the three-and-a-half-hour award ceremony was uh, given a 12.7 rating among households, according to the data from Nielsen Media, and that may not mean a whole lot to most of you, but uh, it's a low number. That's the biggest ratings drop for the Grammys since 2013, one year after the death of Whitney Houston on the eve of the 2012 ceremony. Well, the show aired earlier this year, but um, it uh, didn't face competition from... Uh, The The Walking Dead, like it did last year, as zombies, Uh, the zombie show um, uh, didn't return for several more weeks. But some of the night's most uh, political moments included a brief Clinton cameo, where she read from the book Fire and Fury, and you know that had to have been entertaining. Kendrick Lamar uh, took the stage. He backed was backed by a waving American flag, flanked by a cadre of dancers dressed in military like clothing. He performed his uh, his uh, rap. Piece with some political lyrics. Uh, Camilla Cabello had uh, one of the more politically charged moments on the night when she took the stage to uh, make a plea in favor of Dreamers, referencing the debate happening in Washington, D.C. over the repeal of DACA. And Logic and U2, they used their time on stage to slam the president's alleged uh, comments on countries that um, was less than civil. Um, logic told the crowd the uh, the rapper added uh, and lastly to those who fight for equality in a world that is not equal not just and not ready for the change we are here to bring I say unto you bring us your tired your poor and any immigrant who seeks refuge for together we can build not only a better country but a world that is destined to be united in any event of uh, the Grammys Uh, were not uh, viewed by the large numbers that they had been accustomed to some years back. I think that's pretty true across the board for a lot of uh, entertainment, uh, where the lines are being blurred between entertainment and uh, more serious subjects. Well, meanwhile, newly recovered FBI texts have raised some further questions about the Clinton investigation. I look forward to the day when all of these uh, investigations um, are Completed or abandoned or whatever needs to happen with them. But anyway, federal investigators said on Thursday that they had found at least some of the missing texts between two FBI officials. Republicans raised more questions about the um, bias at the government's chief law enforcement agency. So pretty much more of the same. Now, you might recall there were some months of uh, these texts that we were told last week had simply vanished and it was a glitch in the system that meant that these, this critical period and because of the period that it covered, it was very suspicious to those uh, who believe that the FBI and the Department of Justice are doing less than what's in the best interest of the American people. Well, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz told Congress that his investigators had managed to recover messages between the agents uh, Peter Stroke and FBI lawyer Lisa Page, who were both ousted from the investigation into Russian meddling in the U.S. election. Now, Republicans had wondered how the messages disappeared, particularly after another batch between the reported uh, pair revealed a number of curiosities about the investigations of 2016 Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and Republican candidate Donald Trump. Well, in October of 2016, the pair exchanged texts about a Wall Street Journal article detailing potential conflicts of interest in the FBI's criminal investigation into Mrs. Clinton. The article noted that Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe's wife's political campaign received over a half million dollars from entities tied to Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, a close friend and former associate of uh, Mrs. Clinton and certainly her husband, Bill Clinton. Also, the Wall Street Journal reported that 98% of that money was donated after the FBI started the Clinton investigation. Well, texts between Mr. Stroke and Ms. Page appear to show that FBI Chief of Staff James Rybicki believed Mr. McCabe should have recused himself from the investigation. Mr. McCabe didn't recuse himself until one week before the presidential election. Well, Rybicki just called to check in, Ms. Page said in the text. He's very, he very clearly, rather, 100% believes that Andy should be recused because of the perception. Well, Ms. Page then says uh, if it's a matter similar to those we've been talking about lately, why no recusal before? I assume uh, McAuliffe picked up, Miss, uh, Mr. Stroke responded, but that doesn't make sense. He, doesn't, uh, he said he was interviewing. Maybe he's heading into private practice. Well, in another exchange, Ms. Page warned Mr. Stroke about coming on too strong and in investigating Ms. Clinton. Uh, one, uh, one more thing, she might be our next president. The last thing you need us uh, going in there loaded for bear, Ms. Page said, um, in the text. Well, Mr. Stroke responded that he agreed. So what does that mean in the context of an ongoing investigation? Well, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles Grassley, Iowa Republican, released the texts and fired off a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray, saying the messages raised questions about conflicts of interest in the Clinton investigation. Mr. Grassley wrote that those leading the investigation cared very much about politics to the detriment of the Bureau's mission and objectivity. Well, the texts are part of 384 messages between Mr. Stroke and Ms page that were released to the Judiciary Committee last weekend, and all the FBI exchanged more than 50,000 texts between July of 2015 and July of 2017. While Republicans said they suspected something fishy when the Justice Department said it couldn't find messages between the 14th of December 2016 and May 17th of 2017, Mr. Trump said on Twitter that the missing texts were one of the biggest stories in a long time. Representative uh, Mark Meadows, North Carolina Republican, demanded that the FBI tell the truth about the vanishing um, texts. And the inspector general said on Thursday that he was able to recover the messages from that period. However, it wasn't clear whether he had found all or just a portion of the texts exchanged in those messages uh, and if they were intact. Well, Mr. Stroke and Ms. Page are former members of the special counsel, counsel uh, Robert Mueller's uh, team investigating suspected links between Russia and the Trump campaign. Meanwhile, Republican lawmakers and the president said the messages were proof of the Russia investigation's political bias. An overstatement? Not altogether clear. Could be. Mr. Stroke, who also investigated Mrs. Clinton's use of a private email server during her term as secretary of state, was removed from the Russia probe after the anti-Trump texts were revealed. Ms. Page left Mr. Mueller's team last summer. Mr. Horowitz didn't say in his letter how the missing texts were recovered, but uh, Stephen Aftergood, a classification, Policy specialist with the Federation of American Scientists said, given the quick turnaround, recovering the missing texts might not have been as difficult as first thought. This might not have been a triumph of for forensic analysis. It might simply have been that the texts were archived in an unexpected way that turned up once they started looking for them. Oh, the back and forth continues. We're at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic. When we come back, we'll uh, cover a bit more news and also talk with Nancy Anderson, author of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome How to Grow a Fair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good evening. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. About six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Nancy C. Anderson. She is a prolific writer, but her latest book is Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome. It's the second edition of this book that's been updated, How to Grow Affair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. She knows she and her husband had to do just that after a season in which an affair threatened to break their marriage up. That was some 30 plus years ago, but she's very candid about that experience and what she and husband have learned. And it is possible to restore a marriage that is uh, stronger following an affair. She'll join us later this hour. Well, former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney on Tuesday uh, held a meeting of mo- meeting of the minds, rather, with uh, one of the most trusted advisors and a Utah political operative as he's preparing to announce a run for the U.S. Senate seat in the next seven days, according to uh, Fox Business. At his mansion in Holiday, Utah, he met with longtime political aide and managing partner at his investment firm. And former Chief of Staff Senator Mike Lee, uh, also of uh, Utah, Boyd Matheson, to discuss his policy initiatives for his upcoming run for Senate, according to sources with direct knowledge of the matter. So Mitt Romney, as I think most people expected, does plan to run. Uh, They uh, came to an agreement that some of the campaign promises he should run on when he's uh, touring the state could include improving Utah's public education system, infrastructure reform and uh, combating the opioid uh, epidemic according to those uh, in the meeting. Romney's campaign initiatives are on the verge of going public with the former Massachusetts governor, likely declaring his Senate candidacy this week, according to sources close to uh, Mr. Romney. A spokeswoman uh, did not return requests for comment, but um, uh, did say that this week would most likely be a time when information would be available. His meeting with his two allies comes on his, uh, as he organizes his campaign team, gets ready to announce his campaign for uh, outgoing Utah Senator Orrin Hatch's seat. Hatch revealed in early January that he will be retiring at the end of this uh, seventh term in office, completing an historic 42-year career in the Senate. Zwick's attendance uh, at the uh, meeting uh, should be no surprise as he's been close to Romney since 2002 with the Winter Olympics in Utah and is expected to be a senior campaign advisor for his soon announced uh, campaign. Tomorrow, of course, is the uh, president's first State of the Union address. He's going to Um, offer five key points, we're told. He hopes to strike a bipartisan and forward-looking tone when he's pushing a theme of building a safe, strong, and proud America for his first State of the Union, a senior administration official said. The speech is going to focus on five key issues, seeking to reach an immigration deal in Congress, the strong economic, rather strong economy from his first year in office, pushing a $1 trillion infrastructure plan, fair and reciprocal trade with other nations, and rebuilding the military, The senior administration officials uh, told reporters on Friday in a background briefing. Well, the president will talk about the economic recovery of 2017 regarding uh, records set in the stock market, increasing wages, millions of new jobs, deregulation and the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The White House released an immigration deal that would provide amnesty for 1.8 million young illegal immigrants brought to the country as minors. In exchange for amnesty, the administration would get $25 billion as a down payment for a physical wall and other security along the southern border and phase out the chain migration and end the visa lottery program. He has an uphill climb as uh, members of his own party, as well as uh, Democrats, have objected to uh, major portions of that initiative. Well, the White House proposal would give legal status to more than twice as many illegal immigrants that uh, President Obama's deferred action for childhood arrivals shielded Uh, From deportation. However, the senior administration official wouldn't respond directly as to a question about whether amnesty simply encourages more illegal immigration and something the president campaigned against. Well, Trump has previously said the $1 trillion spending on infrastructure will come from a public private partnership in which federal funds would leverage greater private investment. The official on Friday didn't touch on that subject uh, either. Um, but said the president cares about American workers, American families, protecting their wages, protecting their opportunities to rise. That will be reflected in the speech. The president will also showcase uh, faces of the opioid crisis, heroes involved in uh, fighting the crisis that have led to millions of deaths. A senior administration official announced Trump delivered a speech to a joint session of Congress last year, but it was not an official State of the Union. The preview offered to the media was only a glimpse uh, with Uh, Reluctance to go into detail, but when asked what headlines will come out of the speech and what the administration would like to see as a headline, the official had a response. What headline uh, would be the economy is roaring? Another is that the president cares about all Americans, the official said. We'll see what the president actually says and what the response will be. Meanwhile, um, there's some question as to whether or not it's time to scrap the State of the Union at all. Uh, Douglas McKinnon uh, suggests that what was once a useful and at times much needed yearly update to the nation and the world has evolved into a partisan mudslinging sideshow. That's not only rarely informative, but now consistently insulting to the goodwill of the American people. I've seen pretty much every State of the Union address of my adult life, and I'd have to agree. Over the last 20-plus years, he points out, the State of the Union speech has become nothing more than the president of the day, be it Republican or Democrat, addressing a gathering of 535 increasingly petulant children throwing temper tantrums on the taxpayer's dime. Now we have certain Democrat members threatening to boycott the president's State of the Union speech. What's next? Members of Congress saying they're going to hold their breath until they turn blue? well, for many years now, every single person in Washington, D.C., has known that the State of the Union address is not only a waste of time, but a complete joke. If only because of the pouting, peevish, and truly disrespectful conduct exhibited by members of the Congress during almost every State of the Union address in recent memory, it's time to retire the in-person delivery. It's time to honor the American people and let them in on the joke. No matter what the voters may think of President Trump, he has cast aside much of the needless and harmful bureaucracy hindering the progress of our nation. And while most presidents would never dream of canceling the State of the Union Address, as it's really become one massive ego-stroking free airtime infomercial aired nationally and internationally, President Trump has proven himself to be a nonconformist in so many ways. The in-person State of the Union Address is just one more piece of uh, scrap, which he may come to believe has to be tossed into the dustbin of American history. Wow. Of course, the Constitution calls upon a State of the Union address. It used to be a kind of a a business uh, speech, given in which the State of the Union was actually the key um, point of the address, but not so much. President Washington's second inaugural address was only 133 words. His first State of the Union address was 1,000 words. Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution doesn't mandate that the president shall from time uh, to time, or does mandate rather, shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. How much of the State of the Union addresses we've heard of late are necessary and expedient? The Constitution goes on. He may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them, end quote. Well, the Constitution doesn't dictate how that information of the State of the Union should be transmitted to Congress. But it does stress that the president only needs to convene both houses on extraordinary occasions. State of the Union addresses of late have been anything but extraordinary occasions. That said, President Trump would do well within his rights or be well within his rights to simply email his version of the State of the Union, maybe tweet. Imagine no more boos from the floor of the House of Representatives where the joint session of crybabies gather. No more screamed insults. No more crossed arms with frowns. No more collection of -of out-of-touch spoiled members of the opposition party refusing to stand when the other collection of -of out-of-touch spoiler members of the president's party cravenly jumped to their feet for an in-your-face staged standing ovation. The American people would finally be spared from the rude and abusive spectacle forevermore. Even if the elected brats of Congress behaved with the manners and decorum which should accompany their high office, the State of the Union will simply mostly be a waste of time. That's because over the decades, every member of the cabinet has come to demand or whine that his or her department must be showcased with various pet and pork projects highlighted. With that kind of um, if that department gets mentioned, mine has to be mentioned thinking the State of the Union address has become the uh, platypus of the political literary world. Various ill-fitting and often unneeded parts pounded together to create an overly long and torturously delivered hybrid mess. Huh. If only because of the pouting, peevish and truly disrespectful conduct exhibited by members of Congress during almost every State of the Union address of recent memory, it's time to retire the in-person delivery. Mail it in, Mr. President. Again, Mr. McCannon is a former White House and Pentagon official and author of the memoir, The 40 Days, A Vision of Christ's Lost Weeks, suggesting that maybe we ought to go back to the original plan for the State of the Union and not this spectacle that it has become. However, tomorrow night, six o'clock, the spectacle that it's become will be in full display. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, sadly, it's human nature for people to want something bigger and better than what they actually have currently. When problems arise in a marriage, the grass can look greener in every other yard, and that can lure a believer, and for that matter, anyone into thinking they're going to find true joy and fulfillment on the other side of the marital fence. Well, in Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow a Fair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage, its second edition, Nancy Anderson My next guest. She assures readers that greener grass is only a mirage and shares how to grow the greenest grass of all in your own backyard. Well, extramarital affairs are not um, the social taboo they once were. And living in a culture that pushes the belief that life is short and you deserve to be happy doesn't help. Well, all of these provide fertile ground for the temptation to cheat in your marriage. Well, after straying to the other side of the marital fence and returning to find forgiveness and restoration, she brings personal experience and an authority to this practical book about predicting and preventing an extramarital affair. Each chapter of this second edition has been revised. A new chapter on repairing marriage following infidelity has been already, uh, a- after it's already occurred, is also a part of it, and she offers seven action words to describe the steps she recommends for all couples who are suffering uh, as a consequence. Well, Nancy Anderson is an award-winning writer who has contributed to 30 books, including six Chicken Soup for the Soul titles. She has written many marriage articles, has been featured in uh, national media. She her husband, Ron Anderson, hosts the new TV program, Growing Healthy Marriages, on HSBN-TV. She joins us today from Orange County, California, to talk about her latest book, Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow fair Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm so happy to be with you. It's wonderful. Well, let's, let's begin by talking about what the Greener Grass Syndrome is. Well, it's not new. I think it started
3: with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God gave her mm. access to everything, every tree, every flower, every fruit, except one. And that's the one she wanted. And it's continued on since then with us wanting what we can't have. Even if you ever gone to dinner with somebody and that you order and then they order and you want <laughs> what what they had. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? It It just... It's something we have to fight against because it's our selfishness. We we think we're missing out on something. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, lots of us get married uh, believing that our husband or our wife, um, that their job is to make us happy. But you write that this is a dangerous lie to believe.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I did believe that lie. We both did, actually. My husband and I, we sat around waiting to be made happy, which that doesn't happen in marriages. Now, you have moments of happiness, and if you're both giving, then you can receive happiness. But if neither of you are giving, then neither of you will be getting. And that's where we were at. We were both demanding and critical and putting up wedges and walls. And, of course, we drifted apart, and our anger overtook Our life. We drifted away from the Lord. We stopped going to church. We just were a mess. And that's when someone at work noticed, you know, and complimented me. And compliments are like magnets. Mm -hmm. And it's human nature to be attracted to someone who's complimenting you. And that's what happened in my case.
2: The first part of your book is titled The Ecstasy and the Agony of My Affair. You write about your betrayal, confession, restoration. Tell our listeners just a little bit about. Um, what happened in your marriage, which is familiar to many when uh, periods of dissatisfaction arise? Mm-hmm. That's what it was. It was We were going through a, a hard time in our own marriage, and that's
3: when you're vulnerable. And now we know that's when you need to really set up these hedges that come later in the book. But we didn't have any hedges. And this man at work, like I said, was being real nice to me, and my husband wasn't. I'm not excusing anything but I'm just telling you how a troubled marriage can be an open door because we sat next to each other at a board meeting-type table and his leg bumped up against mine. Now that happens in business, and it isn't necessarily bad. It's what you do after the leg might touch. I should have pulled away and said, oh, excuse me, and that would have been the end of it, but I didn't move my leg. I let his leg be up against my leg, and I shot him a sideways glance. Uh, without a word saying, I'm open to possibilities. And I should never have done that. that. That mistake darted the wedge that eventually almost cost me my marriage. So we began having lunches together and then lunches alone and then dinner alone. It was progressive, but each step on the way, I knew that it was leading me further away from my marriage. Mm -hmm. But I continued because we know that sin is fun for a little while and there was a certain pleasure to it. And it was the whole greener grass syndrome thinking that I deserved this wonderful feeling that I was having. And it turned out to be a lie, a mirage. It was not green at all. And I came to my senses then. I had moved out of the house Uh, We were headed for divorce, but through a series of circumstances, really regarding my earthly father and my heavenly father, I came to realize and see myself clearly and who I had become, and it was not pretty. And so I repented to the Lord first and then to my husband, and my husband was able to forgive me. Uh, It's still a miracle, even 38 years later. But we rebuilt our marriage, and... (laughs) And made a vow to each other to stop waiting for the other person to fix and to feed me and to begin to feed ourselves and to feed each other.
2: Mm. Now, one and of the common. Please go, go ahead. ahead.
3: No, we just had to start all over because we made a mess of it.
2: Yeah, one of the common phrases that we hear: "Life is short, and you deserve to be happy." Mm-hmm. What does the Bible say about this notion of deserving to be happy?
3: No, that is not in the Bible, and neither is "follow your heart." The heart. What the Bible says about the heart is to guard your heart, one, and also that the, the heart can be exceedingly wicked mm-hmm. we can know it. We can devise things that we think are our hearts, but they're just our emotions. And it is not a good guide to determine uh, your happiness. And the Bible talks clearly, Philippians 4.12 talks about, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of contentment in every situation. And it has to do with I can do all things that God asked me to do through Christ who gives me strength. And that should be our prayer for our marriage. Yes, through rocky times. Yes, through difficult financial wayward children. Whatever it is that comes to um, be a difficulty in your marriage, we can still be content. Content is very different from the emotion of happy.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. You confess in avoiding the greener grass syndrome that in your first year of marriage, you pretty much complained and criticized your way through it. Looking back, what would you have done differently if you had that to do over again?
3: Well, I was very immature. I was 22 when we got married. And I'd pretty much, you know, been to college, had roommates, I did pretty much whatever I wanted to do. So the fact that now another person, I had to uh, take care of this person, I really didn't want to, I wanted to be taken care of. So it was a really big conflict. And I just really felt um, we weren't having any fun. And I had, up until that point, Pretty much dated lots of guys. And if I got bored with them, I'd just pick another one. Well, I I couldn't do that anymore. So it was uh, hard for me to come to the realization. And my husband was critical. He grew up in a home where profanity and yelling and criticizing were normal. And I didn't know what to do with that because my family wasn't like that. So we just had, we were so different. He's an optimist. I'm a pessimist. He's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. We just did not understand each other. And now we make an effort to do that. But at the time, I thought to bail to leave was easier than trying to fix it. And, of course, I was wrong, but I was just selfish.
2: What are some of the warning signs that your your spouse might be having an affair?
3: There are some classic ones, and they've changed a little over time now with the advent of all the electronic devices we mm-hmm. have. But generally, uh, eating and sleeping and exercise patterns that change dramatically without a a reason you can think of, um, someone losing weight, wearing a different style of clothes, you know, if you used to wear jeans and tennies and not care that much hair in a ponytail, and all of a sudden they're looking glamorous, something's going on perhaps, Um, starts arguments so that they can prove to themselves what a jerk the other person is. This is something I did. I'd pick a fight to further my belief that my husband was a jerk. Working longer or different hours, pulls away from church and extended family who would maybe hold that person accountable, takes more showers than usual, compares his or her spouse to other people and shows cold, emotionless behavior. I did that. I distanced myself from it was like I was living in two separate universes and I didn't want them to collide. So I kept them very separate. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm.
3: And then, of course, the big ones taking off the wedding ring. Yes, that's a big red flag.
2: We're talking about the book, Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow A Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to do just that, what these hedges are, how to plant and maintain them. Uh, again, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Nancy Anderson.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Nancy Anderson. She's the author most recently of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. She doesn't just write from a theoretical standpoint, but has had the experience of having to reconcile a marriage after an affair. Now, you write about planting and growing affair-proof hedges. Let's talk first about what a hedge does and how you can grow them around your marriage to avoid avoid um, the kinds of uh, affairs that are so common these days or, uh, and I, I suppose we'll talk a little bit later about what to do if an affair has already taken place.
3: Okay. So the concept of hedges is a boundary, a guarding type hedge that you put around your marriage with the purpose of keeping the good things in and the bad things out. And this is something that my husband and I in our early years didn't even have a clue, didn't have a concept, Um, we recommend now that couples talk about these things. Even in premarital counseling, which we've done, we talk about these hedges. And the beauty of it is that each couple gets to decide where their weaknesses and strengths are and put extra protection in the areas of each couple's weaknesses. I'll run through them real quick. and You can follow up. Uh, The first one, it spells out the word hedges. The first one is hearing, which has to do with communication, not just talking about kids and chores. But sharing each other's dreams, each other's hurts, each other's uh, aspirations. Um, then encouraging, which has to do with building each other up. All of us are good at pointing out someone's faults, but it has to be purposeful to build one another up, and we give some real clear advice on how to do that. Then dating, which is keeping it fresh and fun. A lot of couples forget that they're also a couple, not just mom and dad or part of a family but they are a couple And one day the kids will go away and you need to maintain your couplehood so maintain the dating then guarding which has to do with very specific boundaries at work which especially with both people in the workplace what are the rules do i do i get in a car with the guy do i go to lunch alone with the guy on business travel do we meet do i go in his hotel room Do we meet in the bar? I mean, all these sorts of things have to be talked about ahead of time. And then when the event happens, you go, oh, I'm not going to go to his room. And you say, we're going to meet in the lobby. So there's no discussion about it. There's no decision to be made. It was pre-made. So that helps a lot of people be real clear, especially with workplace things. Then there are other types, boundaries, hobbies, even people at church. You have to always be on guard, not paranoid, but on guard. Then educating, which is talking about really getting to know your spouse's personality. I mentioned that we're opposites in a lot of ways. So I actually studied how do introverts think? Why does he talk to all these strangers? I don't have any desire to talk to strangers. Why does he like doing this? And is he doing it just to annoy me? No, he's an extrovert. So by understanding him, it helped me understand maybe my reaction to him. So we talk about the things that are that you can learn about your spouse, his childhood. His dad was an alcoholic. I read books about children of alcoholics. They have different issues than other people might. So that's educating. And then satisfying puts them all in perspective. And that is actually doing the action part of all the other things. Now you've learned what to do, but the actual practice of it is a whole different animal. Sometimes people don't get there. They just think about doing it, but they don't actually do it. So with those six hedges, you're in good shape.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What kind of work does it take to maintain those hedges once you've established them?
3: Well, it takes it does take a lot of work. Just as in a real garden, I mean you have to pull the weeds, discontentment comes along, trials come along, you have to pull those things out that are hurtful to the marriage, and then you really have to tend to them. You have to trim it, you have to move it. Um, different things happen. You have an ill child. We had elderly parents to care for, might have a financial setback. Things happen and those hedges have to be reconfigured.
2: Now, one of the things in this second edition of Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome is an affair a repair segment in which you also offer some suggestions on how to move forward if an affair has already taken place and the couple is committed to reconciling.
3: Yes, and this is so exciting that this is in here because it wasn't in the original mm-hmm. book. So it is are seven steps, the first one of which is reveal, which means tell the whole truth. Get it all out there. Not in great detail. I am not one on giving lots of details, but, but tell the whole truth. Then repent, which means to turn away from, to break off with the person, to repent to the Lord, to repent to the spouse. What do I need to do to fix this? Then reconcile, which is that joining together of trying to make it balance, um, trying to make amends, and then rebuild, which is starting over with a new foundation, a recommitment to the Lord, a recommitment to each other, and then resolve, which is determining in your heart and getting a plan for change. Then renew, which we've seen people renew their vows in a most wonderful way, which was they got rebaptized together at symbolizing the new birth of their marriage as a new a new foundation and then the last one is rejoice and that is to celebrate the awesome miracle that can happen even with this horrible breach of a marriage that the lord can restore it and that's the beauty of our relationship now 40 years in june is that we have been restored and we now rejoice.
2: Hmm. How long did it take you uh, for your marriage, rather, to heal after you decided to remain committed to one another?
3: Well, forgiveness, in my opinion, is a gift you give someone, undeserved. But trust can take as long as it takes. Now, in our case, I was really transparent about where I was and who I was with. and, And I also quit my job and had no contact with this other person. So I think it was a little easier for my husband. If I'd kept working there, I don't think we'd still be married. Mm. So it took us probably two years to really feel like we could take a breath and go, okay, we're we're on solid ground.
2: One of the things you confess is that your husband was willing to forgive and ultimately to trust you uh, sooner than you were able to trust yourself. Mm. Um, And for the person who is guilty of having uh, had an affair, what challenges might they expect in this process of reconciling that they may not anticipate?
3: I was surprised by it actually too, um, because he forgave me, like I said easier than I forgave myself mm-hmm. because I'm like, how did that happen once the the veil, so to speak, was lifted and I saw myself clearly, what in the world have I done? I went to five years of Bible college. I knew what it was wrong. I just got... I was in rebellion. And once I came to my senses, much like the prodigal son that Mm -hmm. came home, I came home to my husband and I had to live with and reconcile my guilt before God. Of course, God forgave me. But I had to work through my forgiveness and set up these boundaries, help me, that I will not do that again.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great book, and I would recommend it for anyone who is committed to a marriage that is protected by the hedges you write about and those who have struggled because of an affair. Again, the title of the book is Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage and Find Out that the grass on your side of the fence can be as uh, green as uh, as, um, you would hope. Nancy Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. We appreciate wonderful. it very much. By the way, the book is uh, published by Kregel and is available in bookstores. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: This is the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, I read an interesting article in Christianity today having to do with a church that had a baptism that went wrong in the courts in trying to reconcile the. The differences between the church and the individual who was offended, um, the, the court weakened church protections, and I think it's a cautionary tale. Uh, Christianity Today reports that when churches face lawsuits, does their religious liberty hinge on whether or not their accuser is an official member? Well, experts are concerned that in an unusual baptism gone wrong, a state Supreme Court has decided that the answer to that question is yes. Now, the first thing, a baptism gone wrong? Well, nearly a year ago, the Oklahoma Supreme Court decided, five to three, that a Muslim convert to Christianity whose baptism nearly got him killed— couldn't sue First Presbyterian Church in Tulsa for inadvertently alerting his would-be murderers with its online announcement of the baptism. Now, they innocently were rejoicing over uh, the fact that a former Muslim had come to faith in Christ and, without thinking about the implications of a Muslim background believer, had posted, as they did with every other uh, new convert who had been baptized, information regarding that individual. Well, 10 months later, in December of last year, the justices changed their minds and they issued... A 5 4 decision that the man could, in fact, have his day in court. Well, this month, First Presbyterian Church asked the Sooner State's top court to take a third look at the case, arguing that the justices mixed up two separate issues of law the ecclesiastical extension or church autonomy doctrine and the ministerial exception. Well, the trouble started more than six years ago when a Syrian Muslim man converted to Christianity and asked if he could be baptized by First Presbyterian. The man who is called John Doe in the court documents to protect his identity, which is at the heart of the issue, says he asked the church to keep quiet about it since Sharia law demands that converts from Islam be executed. So it wasn't a matter of ignorance. He had to ask at least someone in the church, maybe not the right persons, I don't know, that they keep it quiet that he was being baptized and explain the reason why. Why. Later that day, the man flew to Syria to marry his fiance. A few weeks later, while still there, he was kidnapped and threatened by Islamist extremists, including his uncle and cousin. His uh, abductors had discovered his conversion through First Presbyterian's online weekly bulletin, which announced his baptism according to his lawsuit. Well, after three days of torture, the man escaped after killing his uncle during a struggle for a gun. Well, it took several months for the man and his wife to make their way back to the United States, he told the Tulsa World, a local newspaper. After returning, he went through more than a dozen surgeries to repair his body from the torture. Well, he sued First Presbyterian Church for $75,000, accusing it of breach of contract, contract rather, negligence and outrage. The church asked for the case to be dismissed, reasoning that secular courts don't have jurisdiction over ecclesiastical matters like theology and customs. Well, the district court agreed they dismissed the case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. When the man appealed to the state Supreme Court, it said the same thing. The case was dismissed in February of last year. Then last month, the Oklahoma Supreme Court handed down another ruling. No facts changed, First Presbyterian's attorney, John Tucker, said. And in the ruling itself, no reason was given for reversing or rehearing the case, which can be requested by a losing party after any decision. But one of the justices that sat out the first decision weighed in on Doe's side, the defendant, if you will, the second time around. And uh, uh, one of the justices that agreed with the church in February changed his mind by December. The foundational inquiry is to discern exactly what Doe asked to the appellees to do with respect to baptism, what appellees agreed to perform for Doe, and ultimately the nature and extent of Doe's consent surrounding baptism. The justices stated, noting... Uh, that multiple times Doe did not become a member of First Presbyterian Church. So he wasn't a member of the church. He went for the sole purpose, apparently, of being baptized. Well, ecclesiastical protection for a church arises solely from membership and the consent by the person to be governed by the church. Their opinion continued. They referenced the U.S. Supreme Court's Hosanna-Tabor decision in which all nine justices agreed that the government couldn't interfere if a religious organization wanted to fire a minister. The ministerial exception, or the church autonomy doctrine grounded in the religious cause of the First Amendment, um, the Oklahoma Supreme Court justices decided, operates as an affirmative defense to an otherwise uh, cognizable claim, not a jurisdictional bar. Well, in other words, a religious organization can use the ministerial exception or church autonomy doctrine to defend itself during a case, but not use it to escape from trial altogether. But that's where the court got it wrong. Tucker argued in his petition for rehearing. Well, yes, the ministerial exception can be used to defend oneself at trial, but the church autonomy doctrine is something altogether different. It establishes a constitutional denial of jurisdiction, which means that a secular court has no right to even try the case in the first place. This case cannot be finally decided without delving into Christian beliefs about baptism generally and Presbyterian beliefs specifically. It will be necessary to judge how the Presbyterian faith uh, views publications, both under church governance and historical documents. Well, it goes on from there. But at the heart of the matter is the man uh, ended up in an altercation with his abductor, his uncle. His uncle didn't survive in a tussle over a gun. Uh, the man, Mr. Doe, shot and killed his uncle. He was held and tortured for three days, managed to escape, but sustained serious injuries. Now, there's a court case here, and one wonders, it's not mentioned in the Christianity Today article, uh, how the church responded to the situation aside from the court case. Was there an effort to help to underwrite the cost of the uh, uh, the medical treatment that was uh, required by the man. Was there an ap- We don't know any of those details based on what we have here. Uh, just what religious liberty scholars and law professors say about the liability of the church in this case. And I bring it up for a couple of reasons. One is, as I mentioned earlier, it's something of a cautionary tale about uh, what the church hears when someone approaches for baptism, as in this case, uh, and what... Um, uh, whether or not they hear carefully enough um, the strictures that are, are asked of them to protect that individual and particularly with Muslim background believers, as was the case with this uh, this gentleman, now one would hope that, as the body of Christ at this church in that location, that they would respond in a way that would reflect genuine concern and effort to come alongside this new believer. Um, We don't know what impact this whole situation has had on his his faith and his determination to follow Christ, stepping away from his uh, Muslim beliefs. But one can only hope and pray that this will be reconciled, not just in the courts, what they decide, but this will somehow be reconciled among the parties directly involved, and that churches would be very careful about uh, providing information, especially if they've been asked not to, uh, even though it's uh, born out of rejoicing and um, uh, glad. Uh, glad hearts over the fact that someone who was lost has been found. Um, anyway, an interesting case. We'll find out what the Supreme Court ultimately says in that um, that situation. I'll try to follow it as much as is possible. Well, taking a look at the remainder of uh, of the program for this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Sarah Marr. She's the author of Dreaming with God, a bold call to step out and follow God's lead. We're also going to talk with Joseph Franco. He's with Alliance Defending Freedom, and he's going to be at the... Uh, 2018 Freedom Rally that's sponsored by Oregon Liberty Alliance that's coming up this weekend. We'll give you all the important details on that. And uh, there's another of the presenters that we're also going to interview on uh I have an opportunity to talk with on Thursday. I'm very excited about it. I don't have the information in front of me, so I'll just say that much and leave it at that, but excited about it. Also on Tuesday, the president will be delivering his first State of the Union address that will be followed by a series of others also offering State of the Union addresses. And uh, the question being asked, do we really need a State of the Union address as it has now been morphed into kind of a litany of, uh, of pretty expensive programs that any president over the last several decades has? outlined he uh, intends to uh, initiate. And then we're going to talk this week with Matt Tallman. He's um, going to be one of the presenters at the Short-Term Mission Connection. That's coming up uh, shortly. We'll give you details about that. And on Thursday, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist with the Romans Project, uh, a really uh, amazing program to help train um, pastors in Africa um, in the scriptures. And as I've traveled there several times, I know one of the things that I hear over and over again is we lack the training, we need training, and this is a great resource for many of them. So we'll talk with Pastor Gilchrist on Thursday. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks
1: for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.